Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1111 with a release and air date of Saturday, June 13th, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community around the world, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1111 of This Week in Amateur Radio. Due to the current pandemic, the United States Postal Service announces an interruption to its international service. Malicious interference is plaguing the Chicago Police Department. A new section manager is appointed in North Dakota in wake of a recent resignation. The ARRL Volunteer Monitor Program recognizes good operators. There is a brand new weekly contest on the HF bands. We have a lot of news from the FCC this week, including news on 5G deployments, new rules for the millimeter wave bands, New promotions for ATSC 3.0 television broadcasters to provide internet access and provides bidding procedures for the upcoming rural broadband auction. The deadline is coming up for the McGann Silver Antenna Award nominations. And the AWRL contest program issues a new frequently asked questions list for 2020. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will be here. This week, Leo talks about using RAM disks with today's technology and breaks down the latest with 5G. Australia's own Anno Benshop, VK6FLAB, will cover the best way to pick a field operating position. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill talks about how amateur radio fared at the 1938 radio conference and how it affected amateur radio. Our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will teach us some tower climbing vocabulary. And we will have part three of the talk by QSO Today's Eric Guth, 4Z1UG, with Amateur Radio's biggest cheerleader, Gordon West, WB6NOA. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in beautiful downtown Albany, New York, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from my home studio in central New York, where the birds are chirping and the sun is shining, I'm Chris Perrine, KB2FAF. And reporting from our amateur radio bunker atop the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where summer is here, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Leading off this week's report. 
The U.S. Postal Service has temporarily suspended international mail acceptance for items addressed to certain destinations due to service impacts related to the pandemic. This situation could result in the return or loss of mail, such as QSL cards, addressed to affected parts of the world. The USPS has posted a list of affected countries, which is updated regularly. The Postal Service will, upon request, refund postage and fees on mail bearing a custom stamp that's returned due to the suspension of service, or the sender may remail returned items with existing postage once service has been restored. When remailing under this option, customers should cross out the markings Mail Service Suspended Return to Sender. In Chicago recently, the challenge of keeping life orderly during troubled times has been amplified and complicated for police because of one issue that is well known to radio amateurs, malicious interference. Jamming is perhaps one of the most adversarial forces out there for ham radio operators. Chicago's police department is afflicted with the same problem. In the middle of the kind of explosive riots, looting, and protests that are rocking many of the cities around the United States. As Chicago police officers struggle to respond to dispatchers' emergency radio calls in the troubled city, jammers were filling the frequencies with music and slogans that interrupted communications, according to a report in the Chicago Sun-Times newspaper. Dan Casey, Deputy Director of Public Safety Information Technology in the Office of Emergency Management and Communications, said that although some police frequencies are encrypted, most officers' radios aren't protected from hacking, although the move in cities across the U.S. is to employ more secure digital radio systems. Casey told the newspaper that local and federal authorities were being given recordings of the transmissions. Jamming is illegal, and an accused jammer can face a substantial prison term if convicted. Richard Budd, W0TF, has been appointed as North Dakota's ARRL section manager, succeeding Nancy Yoshida, K0YL, who resigned on June 2nd after serving since January of 2018. With more details on the new appointment, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from League Headquarters. Yoshida will become the vice president of the YL International Single Sideband System this year, and she felt she could not do justice to both leadership roles. Bud, who lives in York, will complete the remainder of Yoshida's term, which extends through September 30th. Bud was the only nominee to submit a petition to run for the next term of office as the North Dakota section manager by the June 5th deadline. As a result, he'll continue as section manager for the two-year term that starts on October 1st, 2020. I am since 1980, but has served as a North Dakota assistant section manager since 2018, was section emergency coordinator in 2018, and previously served as North Dakota's official observer coordinator. ARRL Radio Sport and Field Service Managers Bart Yonke, W9JJ, made the appointment after consulting with ARRL Dakota Division Director Matt Holden, K0BBC. Volunteer Monitor Program Coordinator Riley Hollingsworth, K4ZDH, said the program has recognized numerous radio amateurs with good operator notices. With more details on the new Volunteer Monitor Program, We go to league headquarters in Newington, where Steve Ford, WB8IMY, files this special report. One facet of the ARRL and FCC agreement that set up the Volunteer Monitor Program 
calls for the ARRL to recognize especially good amateur radio behavior in order to encourage compliance with FCC rules and further the efficiency of the amateur radio service. 17 operators in 15 states received good operator notices in the first quarter of 2020. The good operator notices were sent to veteran operators as well as newcomers, including a 13-year-old in North Carolina for CW operation during the Youth on the Air special event and a 14-year-old in Wyoming for SSB operation. A 2-meter repeater operator received a good operator report for establishing and managing a COVID-19 net in Pennsylvania, and other operators of various license classes received notices for their everyday SSB and CW operation on the HF bands. Recipients were nominated on the basis of observation observed by the volunteer monitors. According to Hollingsworth, volunteer monitors reported 2,035 hours monitoring on HF and 2,856 hours monitoring on VHF, UHF, and other frequencies during May. After kicking off on January 1st, the new volunteer monitor program ramped up to operational status earlier this spring, starting with a soft rollout that started on February 1st, designed to familiarize volunteer monitors with issues on the bands and to put into practice what to report and what to ignore based on their training. Hollingsworth uses a system called VM Track, developed by a volunteer monitor, to measure the work of VMs and determine instances that qualify for good operator or discrepancy notices, referral to the FCC, or follow-up with FCC requests to the volunteer monitor program. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. There is a brand new contest on the air, the Worldwide Sideband Activity Contest. The first contest was held on May 20th, and subsequent competitions have been held on what is Monday night in North America ever since. It's the creation of a committee of six active contesters, three of whom were on the remote ham radio multi-multi-team WW2DX for the WPX SSB contest and scored big with more than 32,000 points. They include Case, W0AAE, who at 15 is already an accomplished operator in CW, SSB, FD4DXing, and satellite operations. There is also Charles, AA4LS, who at 13 is the youngest of the organizers. Charles was on the WPX CWMM team that claimed the second place in that contest. The idea was born in discussions among the six during a chat session of the remote ham radio youth program, of which they are all members. In April, they decided a weekly contest would be a great way to help hams of all ages sharpen their operating skills on sideband, much like the CWT tests, which are held regularly by CW Ops for operators who prefer code. Case said that the contest is geared for people who are starting out in HF or contesting and want to sharpen their skills. 
It's a worldwide activity, and it's open to hams of all ages. For details on the next contest, visit WWSAC.com. The Federal Communications Commission this week proposed a $225 million fine against Texas-based health insurance telemarketers for apparently making approximately 1 billion illegally spoofed robocalls. This is the largest proposed fine in the FCC's 86-year history, reflecting the seriousness of the apparent violations by John C. Spiller and Jacob A. Mears, who use business names including Rising Eagle and J-Squared Telecom. Rising Eagle made approximately 1 billion spoofed robocalls across the country during the first four and a half months of 2019 on behalf of clients that sell short-term, limited-duration health insurance plans. Mr. Spiller admitted to the U.S. telecom industry traceback group that he knowingly called consumers on the do-not-call list as he believed that it was more profitable to target these consumers. He also admitted that he made millions of calls per day and that he was using spoofed phone numbers. The robocalls falsely claimed to offer health insurance plans from well-known health insurance companies. Beginning in 2018, there was an increase in consumer complaints and robocall traffic related to health insurance and other health care products. The traceback group determined that approximately 23.6 million health insurance robocalls were crossing the networks of the four largest wireless carriers each day. The FCC Enforcement Bureau's investigation found that a large portion of this unwelcome robocall traffic was driven by Rising Eagle. The Truth in Caller ID Act prohibits manipulating caller ID information with the intent to defraud, cause harm, or wrongfully obtain anything of value. The FCC's investigation found that robocalls made by Rising Eagle were spoofed in order to deceive consumers, targeted millions of do-not-call-list participants, and were received on many wireless phones without prior consumer consent. The scam also caused the companies whose caller IDs were spoofed to become overwhelmed with angry callbacks from aggrieved consumers. At least one company was hit with several lawsuits because its number was spoofed, and another was so overwhelmed with calls that the telephone network that it uses was unusable. In recent years, the FCC has issued a number of very large fines and proposed fines for spoofing violations. In addition, it has permitted phone companies to block suspected malicious robocalls before they get to consumers, led the push for caller ID authentication using stir-shaken standards, worked to reduce unwanted calls to reassign numbers, took steps to prevent scam robotechs, and provided many alerts, tips, and other education tools to help consumers protect themselves from scammers. The proposed action, formerly called a Notice of Apparent Liability for Forfeiture, or NAL, contains only allegations that advise a party on how it has apparently violated the law and may set forth a proposed monetary penalty. The Commission may not impose a greater monetary penalty in this case than the amount proposed in the NAL. Neither the allegations nor the proposed sanctions in the NAL are final Commission actions. The party will be given an opportunity to respond and the commission will consider the party's submission of evidence and legal arguments before acting further to resolve the matter. In other action, the FCC announced a $5 million settlement with Voice Over Internet Protocol or VOIP telephone service provider Magic Jack regarding the company's failure to report its interstate revenues and to contribute to the Universal Service Fund. 
The Federal Communications Commission today took important steps to foster the growth of the next-generation data service, enabled by the transition of digital television to the ATSC 3.0 standard. That standard expands the potential ancillary and supplemental uses of broadcast spectrum for new and innovative services, such as autonomous vehicles, smart agriculture, or telemedicine, that will complement the nation's burgeoning 5G network. These new offerings over broadcast spectrum are referred to as broadcast internet services to distinguish them from traditional over-the-air video services, which will continue to be offered alongside new data services. In its declaratory ruling, the Commission clarifies that long-standing TV station ownership restrictions do not apply to the lease of Spectrum to provide broadcast Internet service. This means that a broadcast TV licensee can lease the Spectrum to another broadcaster, including one operating in the same geographic market, or to a third party for ancillary and supplementary services without triggering the Commission's broadcast attribution or ownership rule. In an accompanying notice of proposed rulemaking, the Commission asks whether and how to modify its existing ancillary and supplementary service rule, adopted more than 20 years ago, in order to further promote the deployment of broadcast Internet service. The NPRM also seeks to comment on potential uses of the new technology associated with ATSC 3.0 and any existing regulatory barriers to deployment. Additionally, the NPRM specifically asks whether any changes are needed to the ancillary and supplementary service fee rules and rules defining derogation of service and anodulous services. Today's action takes important steps to further unlock the potential of broadcast spectrum, empower innovation, and create significant value for broadcasters and the American public alike by removing uncertainty cast by legacy regulation. Action by the Commission on June 9, 2020 by Declaratory Ruling. The Federal Communications Commission today took action to facilitate the deployment of 5G networks across the United States by clarifying and seeking comment on the Commission's rules regarding state and local government review of modifications to existing wireless infrastructure. Today's action will expedite equipment upgrades to deploy these next-generation networks, which are critical to expanding economic opportunities and supporting public health and safety in American communities. Congress enacted Section 6409 Subpart A of the Spectrum Act of 2012 to streamline state and local government review of certain requests to modify wireless transmission equipment on existing structures, and the Commission in 2014 adopted rules to implement that section. Under this framework, a state or local government shall approve within 60 days any request for modification of an existing structure that does not substantially change the physical dimensions of that structure. The declaratory ruling adopted today clarifies the Commission's 2014 rules with regard to when the 60-day shot clock for local review begins. The ruling also clarifies how certain aspects of proposed modifications, height increases, equipment cabinet additions, and impact on concealment elements and aesthetic conditions affect eligibility for streamlined review under Section 6409A. In addition, today's action clarifies that, under the Commission's Rules on Environmental and Historic Preservation Review, FCC applicants do not need to submit environmental assessments based only on potential impacts to historic properties when parties have entered into a memorandum of agreement to mitigate effects on those properties. 
The Commission also adopted a notice of proposed rulemaking that seeks comment on proposed rule changes regarding excavation or deployment outside the boundaries of an existing tower site. The action taken today is a crucial next step in the FCC's ongoing efforts to remove regulatory barriers that inhibit the deployment of infrastructure critical to building 5G networks. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. The Federal Communications Commission voted this week to initiate a proceeding to make more efficient use of additional millimeter band spectrum resources, including for the provision of wireless backhaul for 5G and the deployment of broadband services to aircraft and ships. In the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, the Commission explores new and innovative commercial uses of the 71 to 76 gigahertz, 81 to 86 gigahertz, 92 to 94 gigahertz and 94.1 to 95 gigahertz bands collectively known as the 70 80 90 gigahertz bands these 70 80 90 gigahertz bands are unused or underused in large parts of the country with current use of the spectrum primarily concentrated along a few high traffic routes the notice of proposed rulemaking seeks comment on various proposals for expanded use of the 70, 80, 90 gigahertz bands for a myriad of innovative services by commercial industry while protecting incumbent users of the band including federal users. The item approved today proposes changes to the Commission's antenna rules for the 70, 80, 90 gigahertz bands that would allow for smaller antennas in these bands. This could lower costs, facilitate network densification, and help support the provision of backhaul for emerging 5G services. The item also seeks comment on amending existing rules or establishing new rules that would allow for the use of the 70, 80, 90 gigahertz bands for the delivery of broadband internet access aboard aircraft in flight and ships at sea. The action today is another step in the agency's comprehensive strategy to facilitate America's superiority in 5G technology. The Federal Communications Commission today adopted procedures for Phase 1 of the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund auction, which will award up to $16 billion in support over 10 years for the deployment of fixed broadband networks to millions of unserved homes and businesses across rural America. The $20.4 billion Rural Digital Opportunity Fund is the FCC's most ambitious step ever toward bridging the digital divide. It prioritizes bids for higher speed, up to 1 gigabit, and lower latency networks, and more than doubles the minimum speed from the FCC's 2018 Contact America Phase 2 auction to 25-3 megabits. Bidding in the auction will begin October 29, 2020, with the application window for potential bidders opening on July 1st. 
The public notice adopts application procedures to ensure that bidders have the business experience and financial means to deploy broadband networks and intend to use a network technology that will allow them to meet performance requirements. Commission staff will closely scrutinize applications to ensure that all applicants are proposing to use technologies with demonstrated success in providing mass market retail broadband to consumers to ensure taxpayer funding is not wasted. Phase 2 of the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund will make available at least $4.4 billion in addition to unallocated funds from Phase 1 to target partially served areas using precise, granular broadband coverage data being developed in the Commission's Digital Opportunity Data Collection proceeding along with areas not won in the Phase 1 auction. Communities and individuals with questions about the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund can contact the FCC's Rural Broadband Actions Task Force at ruralbroadband at fcc.gov. The ARRL contest program has released some frequently asked questions related to the field day temporary rule waivers. On May 28th, the ARRL Program and Services Committee adopted these provisions only for the June 27 and 28th, 2020 event. The first change is Class D stations may work all other field day stations, including other Class D stations for points. And the second change is an aggregate club score will be published, which will be the sum of all individual entries that indicate a specific club. Contact the ARRL Contest Program with any questions related to Field Day 2020. Question. Several of our club members are going to operate independently and wish to attribute their scores to the aggregate club score. What call sign should they use? Answer. Participants should use their own call signs. Except for Class C mobile entries, all transmitters, receivers, and antennas must be located within a 1,000-foot diameter circle, may operate using a single call sign. This prohibits the use of a single call sign from more than one location. Under the 2020 waiver, those operating from home, including backyard operations, must use their own station call signs. Multiple home stations operating with a club call sign or modified club call sign, such as W1AW-1, W1AW-2, W1AW-3, etc., are not allowed. Question. How does my club submit an aggregate club score? Does the club need to add up each participating member's scores and submit a club entry with the aggregate score under the club call sign? Answer. Each participant will submit his or her own independent entry under his or her call sign. ARRL will calculate the aggregate score based upon the club name entered on the official field day entry form via the web applet, preferred method, or on the paper field day entry form. In order for results to be tabulated correctly, all club participants must enter the club's official name exactly the same, avoiding abbreviations or acronyms. This is important. Question. Our group is still planning to operate at the usual field day site, but some members do not feel comfortable gathering in a large group this year. Can we still submit an entry using the club call sign as well as have members operating from home using their own call signs? Answer, yes. If your club is still hosting a group field day effort, it will submit an entry as usual using the club call sign. 
Club members operating at home will submit separate entries with their own call signs and will enter the club name on the entry form for club aggregate scoring. Question, can a club member operate from home using the club call sign? Answer, yes, but the call sign may only be used in one location. The member must receive permission from the trustee of the club call sign. Question. A club normally enters field day in class A. If we operate from our home stations, in which class should individual members enter in order to be included in the aggregate club score? Answer. Each member will operate independently and will submit the entry using whatever class that applies to their operation. Typically, home stations running on commercial AC power are Class D, while home stations running on battery, solar generator, or the like, i.e. not from AC mains, are Class E. When the results are published, each club member will be listed in the results under the class in which they operated. For 2020 only, aggregate club scores will be listed by the club name in a separate listing. Question. Our club will have 10 members operating from home as Class D stations. Should they worry about working the same station on the same band and mode? Answer. Because members are operating as separate entities using their own call signs, the contacts are not considered duplicates. Question. Does the club need to be an ARRL-affiliated club to participate in field day? Answer. No. All clubs and groups are welcome to participate in ARRL field day. Question. How will bonus points be calculated for the aggregate club scores? Can individual club members still earn bonus points? Answer. All individual scores, including bonus points, will be added together to determine the aggregate club score. Refer to the complete rules to determine eligibility for bonus points. The much-anticipated updated features at the ARRL contest portal are here. These web-based tools provide an updated interface to contest data for all ARRL-sponsored contest events, including a contest score viewer, which includes a searchable call history and records, submitted logs and raw scores for recent events, downloadable comma-separated values, files of contest results, club competition scores, including total and individual scores, a soapbox page for posting and viewing contest stories, photos, and other media, downloadable printable certificates suitable for framing, log checking reports, access to public logs, contest results articles, and line scores. ARRL contest portal users will notice other minor changes to the site as some functions have been moved on the page for better functionality. The ARRL contest portal is now a one-stop shop for all ARRL-sponsored contests. From that site, you can access everything, from the start time of a contest to your post-event certificate of accomplishment. The ARRL contest information is now conveniently located in one centralized location. Contact the contest program manager for more information on the updated features and on ARRL contests in general. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
Hey, remember RAM disks? Are they still worth setting up? Next. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. A RAM disk is using a portion of your computer memory, you know, the 8 gigs or 16 gigs, or if you're lucky, 32 gigs, as a hard drive, as a disk. The idea being they're so fast to access that if you put something on there, it'd be really quick. And this was a technique very popular a few years ago. In fact, I remember going in to a computer store. This must have been 20 or 30 years ago. And hearing the tech say, explain to somebody, you what you really want is 8 megabytes megabytes of RAM in your computer. You want 2 megabytes for the operating system and programs, 2 megabytes for a RAM disk, 2 megabytes for a cache, and I can't remember what he thought the other two were for. But that's a long time ago, and I think it's probably the case that RAM disks these days are not worth the time and the effort. Let me let me explain why. Now these days we have a lot of har- of uh, storage, a lot of RAM on our computers, pretty much 8 megabytes. Goodness, we have 8 gigabytes and that's a starter. Uh, more typically, your computer will probably have 16 gigabytes or more. And it's not unreasonable to say, well, why don't I just take two gigabytes of that and make it a RAM disk? Now, first of all, you're going to need some third-party software. And yes, they still sell it. Uh, you know, $30, $40. You can get a program that will turn that extra memory into a hard drive. But then you're going to have to have the operating system use it as a hard drive it won't be your c drive or your d drive it'll be you know some other letter you can assign letters in most of these programs and uh, you can even have it remember it'll when you shut down the computer it'll go away so you can even have it automatically load on startup i'm looking at a program called data ram ram disk data ram will load it on startup it'll save the disk image it shut down which is nice because remember one problem with a ram disk is RAM goes away when your computer's turned off. So any change you make to it won't normally be saved, but modern RAM disk software will save it. In fact, you can even have it save every few minutes if you plan to put anything on it. Typically, you wouldn't. Typically, you'd use RAM disks for something that's not going to change, something like a program that you load all the time. Here's why it's probably not a good idea. First of all, modern operating systems are really good at using memory to do exactly this. They'll load as much as they can into memory, and if you give them all the memory you've got available, they'll be smart enough to load that whole program into memory and run out of memory the whole time. There's no reason for you to manually say, well, okay, I'm going to give you 12 gigs, but I'm going to keep 4 gigs to myself and put the program there. It just isn't efficient, and you're not going to do as good a job as the operating system will. It knows a lot better what it needs. It's also a pain. It's expensive to get. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. And the final reason it doesn't make a lot of sense is most computers these days have very fast disks. Solid-state drives aren't as fast as RAM, but in most cases, they're fast enough that there's no real benefit to loading stuff out of RAM. So let the computer manage memory. It's going to do a better job. Get an SSD if you don't have one. That's what I would spend some money on. If you have an old, slow spinning drive, get a solid-state drive. That'll make the biggest difference and be the best bang for your buck. Given the trouble, the effort, and the cost of setting up a RAM disk, you're not going to see a whole lot of benefit. There are enterprise-level 
products that are very, very fast disk drives that are essentially just RAM memory backed up by uh, by power. They're very expensive, tens of thousands of dollars. And I honestly don't think those are worth it either. So your system, these days, modern operating systems do a really good job of managing memory, processor, let them do their job. And you just enjoy the computing. Uh, let's see, what else can we talk about? Good article in Ars Technica, breaking down 5G. And I thought this would be good to pass it along because you're already seeing ads from companies, won't name names, that 5G is already here in the NFL stadiums, 11 stadiums have 5G in one little corner over by the taco stand. That's it. Uh, that some cities have 5G. Well, if it's AT&T, it's not really 5G. It's 5GE, which is really just LTE. So there's a lot of, you know, you don't have a 5G phone unless you're nuts. There are some 5G phones you can buy, not from Apple, but Samsung has one. OnePlus has one, but they're really expensive. And the worst part is when you buy the phone, you're required to sign up for non-existent 5G service at a much higher price. Oh, and your battery life's going to be terrible. So I'm not recommending 5G at this point. But this article and uh, is by Rob Pegoraro. And I thank you, Rob, for writing this because it's not long, but it kind of clarifies this whole confusing mess. He starts, the long-touted fifth generation, that's what 5G means, of wireless communications is not magic. <laughs> It'll be nice. But it it's really... Uh, a, a basket of technologies, and that's part of the problem. It's, 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 you may hear some wonderful things, but that is about a particular kind of 5G. It's, he says, the first thing to know about 5G, it's a family affair, sometimes a dysfunctional family affair, because there are three different wireless frequencies for 5G, and each of them works very differently. There's one, the one most people talk about, the one I usually talk about, millimeter wave 5G. It's at 24 gigahertz. Now your Wi-Fi is at 2.4 gigahertz, 24 gigahertz. That's why it's millimeter wave. It's micro wave. And you may know this. One of the reasons it's safe to use your microwave oven is because these very small uh, frequencies like even 2.4 gigahertz, bounce off of things. A piece of paper, they will bounce off of. A leaf, they will bounce off of. So at 24 gigahertz, you have to be very close to the tower. The tower, they'll need four times the tower density for millimeter wave 5G. And line of sight, and it's not going to go through walls. It probably won't even you know go through your windows at your office. However... <laughs> It's fast if you can get it. 1.2 gigabits, very low latency, 9, millise 9 to 12 milliseconds, very much like your landline internet if you had really good internet. That's line of sight, and it was 900 feet from the transmitter. <laughs> so you're, you're not, well, you're not, no one. Uh -uh. Maybe if you live in a very dense city and you happen to be close to the tower, maybe. And in fact, this will be used in areas like that for uh, home internet, I suspect. So that's that's one flavor, and probably not the one you and I are going to get. Then there's the one T-Mobile already just launched at 600 megahertz, much, much longer frequencies. That travels great through walls and stuff, but it's not that much faster. Uh, Sprint, then there's, that's low band. Then there's mid band, which Sprint's launched uh, at 2.5 gigahertz. That's the same as LTE. That's the same as close to Wi-Fi. 
So lower speed, but it'll travel better. And you'll probably get 100 megabits, which is pretty good. I mean, you'd, everybody would be happy with that. Although I have to point out, I, you know, on a good day with a good carrier and not too congested a cell site, I get 100 megabits on my on Verizon, AT&T, some of these others, on, on LTE. So this is the problem. It's so, you see, already I'm confused. There's three bands, millimeter wave, medium wave, and low band, as they call it. AT&T is starting to launch the low band. <laughs> oh, and another thing I might point out, they just did a study. I think it was, was it the, the FCC? Government agency did a study of, of carriers' coverage maps. You know, those beautiful pink and red glowing maps that you see on their websites and said, yeah, not so much. That's, <laughs> I don't want to use the word lie, but you might. It's not exactly what you're going to get. So don't look at the coverage maps and go, honey. Let's get a 5G phone. We're right smack dab in the middle. You might not be. In fact, this whole thing is a, it's a bit off, a bit of a ways off. So I'm just going to mention that. Anyway, I'm glad you were here and I'm here and I'll be here next week. And I hope you'll come by and bring your friends too as we talk high tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Cairo, Egypt, 1938. In the pre-war time of colonial empires, this conjures up an image of Europeans in white linen suits sitting on the veranda of a luxuriously decadent colonial hotel. Oppressive ceiling fans, dark, mysterious strangers, Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet. However... For amateurs, Cairo in 1938 meant a setback. The first international radio-telegraph conference was held in Washington, D.C. in 1927. Although amateurs lost almost 40% of their allocations, the concept of amateur radio as a legal international hobby was established. The second conference was held in Madrid in 1932, and that produced no changes in ham radio. Now the third conference was at hand, but times had changed. Italy, Germany, and Spain were under fascist dictatorships. Stalin was directing a ruthless purge in the Soviet Union, and Japan was at war with China. The shortwaves were filled with propaganda broadcasts and military communications. Under this cloud of uncertainty, delegates from 71 countries assembled in Cairo on February 1, 1938. How would amateur radio be treated under these circumstances? Actually, American hams came out of the battle with no major losses. Despite the number of dictatorships at the conference, there was no attempt to destroy amateur radio, which, after all, allowed individual citizens access to receivers and transmitters. The most serious threat came from Japan, which proposed that amateurs be limited to 50 watts input. 
the Japanese plan was easily defeated. The ARRL had pushed for expanded HF bans, but the American delegation, mindful of the potential hostility at the conference, did not propose it. The headlines in the July 1938 QST summed up Cairo. American amateurs retain all frequencies after a terrific fight. USA puts up splendid defense. European hams shortchanged by greedy governments. And European broadcasting to invade seven megacycle band in late 1939. In Europe, the 7200 to 7300 kilocycle segment of the 40-meter band would be shared with broadcasters starting September 1, 1939. They also lost half of the 80-meter band to broadcasting and other services, and the European 5-meter band was scaled back to make way for television. However, it could have been a lot worse. The next international conference was set for Rome in 1942. It never took place. In other 1938 news, the amateur population was stabilized at 50,000 after years of growth. This was partly due to the increase in the code speed from 10 to 13 words per minute in 1937, with regenerative receivers and crystal control transmitters, which meant that two stations having a QSO would probably be on two separate frequencies. Many hams felt that 50,000 was the saturation point for our bands. On October 4, 1938, the FCC issued complete new amateur regulations. Included in the package were two new ham bands at 112 and 224 megacycles. What could hams do up there? Try amateur television. An all-electronic form of television was replacing the mechanical spinning disc, and QST carried several articles discussing the theory and construction of amateur TV stations. W6XAO was an experimental TV station in L.A., which would soon be followed by other pioneers, such as W2XBS. Where have I heard that call before? On September 2, 1938, the new Maxim Memorial Station, W1AW, was dedicated at 225 Main Street in Newington, Connecticut. The station was in memory of Hiram Percy Maxim, the founder and first president of the ARRL, who died in February 1936. Less than one month after Maxim's death, floods roared through the Connecticut River Valley and destroyed W1MK, which had been the league station. Later, in 1936, the ARRL Board of Directors allocated $18,000 to build a memorial station to honor W1AW, as well as to replace W1MK. The station would stand alone on Main Street in Newington until joined in 1963 by the QST offices, which moved from West Hartford. On September 13, 1938, Ross Howell, editor of QST, died after being electrocuted in his home. He had been working on a homebrew TV receiver. Ross was a native of Australia and held the call 3JU while living down under. He did not hold a U.S. license because the citizenship application was not finalized. Despite his lack of American amateur privileges, Ross Hull was instrumental in early VHF-UHF developments. He designed practical and inexpensive 5-meter stations and greatly contributed to the knowledge of VHF-UHF propagation. 
His death dramatically pointed out the dangers of working on live circuits, and for months thereafterwards, QST ran articles on how to switch to safety. No discussion of 1938 would be complete without including the Great Hurricane. In the fourth week of September, New England and Long Island, already soaked by previous rainstorms, were pounded by the unnamed hurricane, which was completely unexpected. Over 600 people died, and damage was $500 million in 1938 dollars. The new W1AW Memorial Station, just three weeks old, survived without any damage, although power was lost for 36 hours. Hundreds of amateurs grabbed whatever generators and batteries they could find and set up emergency stations on 5-meter AM and 160, 80, and 40 CW. Amateurs were the only source of communication for dozens of communities and handled everything from health and welfare traffic to police communications. It was a superb demonstration of public service at its best. In our next installment, we will look at amateur radio in World War II. Yes, amateurs were off the air, but what did they do if they weren't in uniform? What filled the pages of QST? And what was this WORS? Join me as the Ancient Amateur Archives seeks the truth. Online testing and online training have become almost a way of life in the UK for amateurs since the lockdown started months ago. Now, there are record numbers of enrollees signing up to be in one virtual classroom in particular. The pandemic has not gotten in the way of radio amateur candidates pursuing their goals in the UK. Just as the Radio Society of Great Britain has reported record numbers of registrants for their exams, Essex Ham reports that enrollment for their free online training course is also bursting at the seams. They report in the QRZ forum that 420 people enrolled in one of their courses in April and May and has seen a growth of more than 500. The suspension of the practical portion of the license exam has made home-based online learning even easier. Available in nine modules, the Foundation Online Training Course includes presentations, mock tests, and video tutorials. The three-week course also features live webinars. Essex Ham launched the online coursework in 2015 to help new hams who might not have access to local clubs, and now in the midst of the worldwide pandemic, it has a new mission. For additional details, visit hamtrain.co.uk. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. And now, here is our third and final segment of Eric Guth from USA Today for U1UG's talk with the world's biggest cheerleader of amateur radio. That would be Gordon West, WB6NOA. What excites you the most about what's happening in amateur radio now? I enjoy sitting back and listening. I try and stay low-key, out of sight, listening. And the greatest uh, joy I have is on the air listening to ham operators um, doing different things. 
and it can be from working DX to talking about technical topics to looking at how hams who are big on uh, TV have amateur television, looking at their challenge of going from analog amateur television, ATV, over to digital ATV. And um, seeing uh, the different modes that are out there, wondering will there be one finally uh, mode for ATV digital or will we all need to sort of do our own thing? So it's always fascinating to me to tune in the hams via the radio and going to HamFest, I enjoy HamFest. And I realize that with my books and audio, I have a lot of hams coming up. And people say, isn't it sort of a bother for you to have these hams uh, when you're uh, in the restroom uh, wanting to shake your hand? <laughs> no, you don't want to <laughs> shake my hand now. <laughs> but I enjoy it because each one has a, a story to tell. And while I can't listen to the entire story for more than about a minute because there's now a long line to come up and meet and greet, I enjoy it very much. And it's not, hi, glad to meet you. See you later. I always like to ask them, what bands are you on? Uh, what's your greatest excitement of ham radio? Uh, being able to uh, draw out from these folks an interesting aspect that I can then apply to my teaching of ham radio. So uh, being exposed, sometimes I feel very overexposed, but I always try and make time for everybody that wants to say hi because Ham radio, people communicating, this is uh, the best for me. Now, you go to so many ham fests. Do you have one that's your favorite? I always enjoy the Dayton, Ohio ham fest, uh, now moved <laughs> just in time after that uh, tornado to Xenia, Ohio. But, you know, every ham fest, sometimes it's in the middle of a desert. We do one in January called Quartz Fest. No AC, that is no alternating current other than what your rig will generate. Uh, no plumbing, no fresh water. Everybody's on their own. And that is a fun quartz fest where we actually uh, do seminars and so on. And it's always a favorite. Uh, but every ham fest I go to, big or small, and I've been to some, what we're going to be, they thought a big ham fest, and it turned out to be a micro ham fest. But you know, I had so much fun just meeting the vendors and so on. And it's the vendors, these vendors, the mom and pop vendors selling the little gadgets and gizmos, uh, Roger of Wired Co. selling LEDs and turntables. These are the heart of ham radio reel operators. They probably lose more money than they make going to all these ham fests, but they are there to work uh, the hams that come by to get their products. So I have huge respect for those individual hams, as well as Kenwood, Yesu, Icom, Alinko, Bridgecom, all of those manufacturers of radios that continuously support the ham industry by continuously supporting visibility by going to ham fest. So uh, that's one of my big pleasures is uh, watching all that is going on to keep ham radio humming. Do you think that we're in a renaissance of ham radio? Do you think this is a ham radio renaissance? Could be. You know, a lot of people say, well, ham radio, it's going to be like a postage stamp uh, collection and so on. 
It may be, but I'm delighted to see, comes to mind, Bridgecom, who's bringing in uh, these uh, Chinese radios. But the company realized that bringing in these import radios at a fraction of the cost of uh, what would be a, a regular professional ham radio from the big four, it's fun to watch their marketing efforts to keep things going. So, yep, we've got to be cautious that uh, we're not going to uh, plateau out and then start going down. I think the ham radio service is going to continue to grow, but that's thanks to folks that do something more than just pick up the phone to uh, take an order that someone is placing. We've got to have those manufacturers and independents out there supporting ham radio, and that they are doing. Kenwood, Yezu, Icom, Alinko, wow. They're making ham radio happen with gear. So I think we're going to continue to slowly grow, but we've got to be cautious that uh, we don't go the way of stamp collecting. Can you estimate the number of hams that you've created in your life, Gordo? You know, people have asked me, how many hams uh, have I licensed? And Susie and I, thousands, I would say. And uh, those that have studied my books and so on, one of our publishers said that we've probably done eight out of ten that have come in contact with our training materials. So it's always fun. I'm always honored to have folks saying, as an extra class, that they started with us uh, at Radio Shack. But it's it's a huge number, and it is fun. For me, <laughs> we're like the mom and pops. We aren't making much money at this, especially with just uh, uh, only a royalty here and there on the products. But it is fun for me to watch the service continue to help each other in making the most and getting the most out of all we can offer to the general public for emergency comms at ham radio. So eight out of ten, they tell me, not those in classes, probably out of classes, um, gosh, certainly thousands were the actual classes, but those studying the materials, a whole bunch of folks out there. And I'm just honored to be working side by side the American Radio Relay League. It's got to be rolling their eyes going, oh my God, what's going on now? But as everyone will say, I'm a strong supporter of the American Radio Relay League, their ham instruction, and those valued ham radio instructors that are ARRL instructors, W5YI ham instructors, and the independent Elmers. Keep it up, everyone. We want to continue to watch our service grow. Well, I also have to thank you for my extra class amateur radio license. I, As you recall, I came to your house uh, a number of years ago uh, while I was on vacation in Newport Beach, and you, you gave me my uh, extra class license uh, examination there. So... I'm publicly thanking you for that. Well, I appreciate that. I'm fortunate to have across the street a volunteer examiner, and uh, we have several local hams that I can make a phone call to, and they come over to the house. So we had three extra class VEs, and it was a joy uh, watching you take the exam and doing as well as you did on the test. And it was a lot of fun, too. What advice would you give to newer returning hams? On hams coming back into our hobby, immediately come up on, of all things, the two-meter FM channels. Join a local two-meter or 440 or just a local ham club 
that you hear about on two meters talking about club meetings and get involved via at the club level because every club in ham radio has their specialty some clubs are absolutely digital amateur television all they talk is about uh, ATV and other things like propagation uh, the San Bernardino Microwave Society as well as weak signal societies throughout the country uh, their club members will uh, get you homed in on uh, working uh, two meter sideband and CW working meteor scatter and uh, working uh, digital modes uh, uh, FT144 FT8 and many of the other modes so the clubs are really strong supporters of getting those hams getting back into ham radio tuned in. And the best way to find a club is either go to the league's club page and look up uh, via zip code or simply get on the two-meter band, find, um, uh, be sure and have a two-meter uh, ARRL repeater directory for the right subaudible tone. Join that club, go to the meeting, and you're going to be launched back into ham radio with a lot of changes that I've seen and they've seen since the early 50s, 60s, and 70s. Gordo, thanks so much for joining me on the QSO Today podcast. It's been a real guess. I know we've been trying to get together for years, and I'm so happy that we were able to do that today. Well, Eric, you're the only one in the world that I've ever disclosed from 1942 up to where we are close to 2020. So um, you're the only one that has the history, and um, I've got it here on a piece of paper. There it is. It's going in the trash can. So you've got it. You get to roll with it, and I am honored to be aboard QSO today. Thanks so much, Gordo. 73. 73, Eric, from Gordo, WB6, November, Oscar Alpha, now tuning 5KC up. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. This is the ARRL propagation forecast for Friday, June 12th. The sunspot we reported last week is still with us. In fact, it erupted with a Class B flare a few days ago. Thanks to the increased activity, the solar flux index has risen to 72, and there have been reports of long-distance openings occasionally on 15 meters. This is expected to last well into next week. On VHF and UHF, many are saying that conditions at the moment on 6 meters are among the best they've seen in years. Most of the activity appears to be taking place with the FTA digital mode centered on 50.313 MHz. On 2 meters and up, we've seen substantial activity centered in Arkansas and southern Missouri. This is expected to move east in the days to come. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. We have been planning the AMSAT Symposium for 2020, and unfortunately, there are going to have to be some changes made. From the AMSAT Board of Directors and Senior Leadership comes this update. The COVID-19 pandemic has created challenges for everyone, and AMSAT recognizes its need to be socially responsible to keep our members and attendees safe. 
That being said, the 38th Annual AMSAT Space Symposium and Annual General Meeting in-person event scheduled to be held in Bloomington, Minnesota, has been canceled. The event will be shifted to a virtual online platform. While AMSAT recognizes the national challenges related to recent events in Minneapolis, they have no bearing on the symposium decision whatsoever. We anticipate holding the 2021's annual space symposium at the previously announced 2020 venue. The in-person event was scheduled to occur Friday, October 16th through Sunday, October 18th. As the 2020 virtual event plans are developed, they will be announced via the usual AMSAT channels. We hope you will be able to join us online. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. Radio amateurs of Canada report 15 CubeSat satellites are being built by students in Canada. All are expected to carry amateur radio payloads. The Canadian Space Agency has been providing support and guidance to 15 teams of university and college students across Canada who are building satellites. These satellites are in the CubeSat format, based on a standardized architecture of 10 centimeter cubes. All 15 proposed satellites will be deployed from the International Space Station, possibly starting in 2021. RAC is involved in explaining how, and under what conditions, amateur radio can be used for communications with these spacecraft, and a requirement of the frequency coordination process with the International Amateur Radio Union is an endorsement from RAC. We were aware that the suspension of university classes due to the global pandemic could affect the team's progress, but I am pleased to report that all of the teams have chosen to use amateur radio communications and we continue to receive requests from them, although at a slower rate than in the past. About half of the teams have now received endorsements for their projects from the RAC and have sent their proposals to the IARU for frequency coordination. Designing and constructing CubeSats is a complicated, multi-year process. These projects will develop the students' skills in many facets of engineering, science, technology, business, and project management. Once in orbit, the satellites will also assist pure and applied scientific research, and some may offer facilities that amateurs across Canada and around the world can use. AMSAT reports that after some eight months in continuous sunlight, AO73 or FunCube-1 began to encounter some eclipses during each orbit. Telemetry showed that AO73 continued to function, although maintaining a sufficient battery charge was a concern. After three weeks of increasing eclipse periods, however, AMSAT reported that the lithium-ion battery appears to be okay, and the bus voltage has not yet dropped below 8.1 volts. The operating mode has been shifted from high-power telemetry educational mode to continuous amateur mode with the transponder on. Telemetry continues to be available, but at low power. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. This month, we'll learn more tower working vocabulary. As some of you may have noticed, tower climbers and owners have a unique vocabulary. For the climber, this is usually a combination of phrases from climbing, caving, and sailing. Sailing, you say? Yes, there are some phrases concerning the use of guys and rope anchors that were originally used in the ancient occupation of a deckhand. 
Some of these terms from Sailing's history are a shackle, or sometimes called a spelter socket. This is part of the guy cable or guy wire that joins the cable to a mounting lug on the tower. This attachment point is called a guy lug. Bridge strand is a common type of steel cable used for guying a tower. Block. This is the common name for a pulley. The diameter of the roller inside the pulley is usually the size spec for that pulley. Butterfly clamps are commonly used to hold flexible coax to the tower leg. Common spacing is 6 to 8 feet. Some installers use a short piece of heavy wire with insulation, usually a solid conductor, about 10 gauge copper. Some use these in conjunction with electrical tape or weather resistant cable ties. A cat head is a rope pulling device similar in concept to a come along. These are used on sailboats today and also for pulling lengths of wire or cable. Cat heads can also be motorized for pulling cable or wire through conduit. A bull pin is used to align bolt holes. This steelworking tool is commonly used by tower workers to align bolt holes between tower sections. If you are going to build a tower, a homemade bullpen will save you lots of aggravation. A bullpen is probably available at your local hardware store or can be made from a simple one-inch steel rod with a gradual point ground in one end. They are used by hammering into holes to force them into alignment. And now for this month's climbing hint. Many of you folks remember the child's toy commonly called a Chinese finger trap. These flexible woven tubes were things you could stick two fingers into and the harder you pulled, the harder they gripped. There's an electrical device with a similar function made by a company called Kellum, K-E-L-L-U-M. These devices may be found at your hardware store's electrical department. These grippers are used for securing electrical cable, which runs from box to box without any other support. These grippers hold the wire securely and help to prevent it from being pulled out of a box and can easily be modified to grip a coax, then attaching a rope to pull a coax up a tower. If you can't find a Kellum at your hardware store, try asking an electrician that works in a factory or that does commercial work. When hauling coax up towers, use the proper size Kellum to hold the end of the coax. Avoid bending or stressing the coax at the lifting end. This can crack foil shielding and cause crackling when the coax bends in the wind or even fluctuation in SWR. If you've decided to purchase climbing safety gear and chosen to use sport climbing grade belts on towers, when you call their 800 number, don't mention you're going to use it for tower work. Some companies will refuse to do business with you because of their potential liability. This is very much an issue in the sport of recreational climbing, even more so than in the professional tower work. Remember, any time you spend learning about tower safety is an investment in yourself. Education is a big part of tower safety. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Foundations of Amateur Radio 
Much of the operation that I've done as a radio amateur is conducted in the field. That is, I tend to either drive my car to a location or go out with friends and set up camp to play. After you do this for a while, you start to notice the things that you look for in an operating position. The very first one is accessibility. That is, how easy is it to get there? It's fine coming up with the ultimate location, but if it's an hour's drive away and you've only got an hour to play, you'll spend all your time getting there and you'll be home late. By contrast, for field days lasting several nights, I've regularly driven more than 100 kilometres to find the spot, sometimes much more than that. The point is that the accessibility changes depending on your available time. The journey to the location can be just as much fun as the destination itself. How long you plan to be there will determine what antennas you might want to set up. If you're there for an hour, you'll likely use a vertical on your car. If you're there for the weekend, your antenna farm will be determined by how much wire you brought and what you can hang it off. Hanging antennas is the next thing. You can bring your own poles, but for height, nothing beats a solid tree. The taller the better. More taller, more better. If you have several to choose from, you get to play with all manner of fun stuff. For one antenna contraption, we had three trees that we ran a wire between. They were roughly spaced in a triangle, about 200 metres apart from each other. As I recall, the antenna we built, a massive V-beam, managed to talk to Europe for most of the weekend. For another adventure, a simple G5RV dipole was hoisted high into the trees. Another was accomplished by strapping a pole to a fence and setting up an inverted V antenna. Recently, we set up an antenna that was nothing more than a wire running over the ground. So generally speaking, height is good. You can cheat by having a low tree and a hill, or a fence and a pole, or a gazebo and tent pegs. Whatever you can do to attach an antenna to will work to some degree. Which reminds me, if your hill is tall enough, it's likely to have a communications tower on it for someone, if not everyone. They're not the end of the world, but they can cause havoc with noise. Depends entirely on what the communication structure is used for. Bear in mind, some of these sites have noisy solar panel inverters or generators, so that too needs to be taken into consideration. Another factor in picking a location involves water. Setting up a vertical on a jetty is gold. I've made many long-distance contacts using a vertical with a ground wire running into the ocean. Note that you don't have to actually get wet. Being near the ocean is often enough. I've had plenty of success from a beach car park from a vertical on my car. In general, man-made objects such as houses, factories, other cars, power lines, generators, boats, camping grounds with solar panels, and plenty more are often bad news for HF communications. The biggest disappointment happens when you take the time to go to a site, set up camp, build your antennas, turn on the radio, and all you hear is the noise from a nearby source of interference. That said, you don't need to travel to the ends of the earth either. Fifteen minutes from my house is a lake with a park. There's a car park which on occasion attracts a motorhome with a solar panel, but by and large it's a local park with people going for a walk. From a radio perspective, despite homes, businesses, schools and cars nearby, the place is heaven. It's quiet, it has shade, running water, fence posts, and I regularly make contacts from there, right in the middle of the city. That brings me to another aspect, creature comforts. Setting up near a busy road isn't fun. 
neither is sitting in your car without shade. Having amenities within reasonable distance helps. For example, recently for a field day we set up within 10 minutes drive from a regional centre. Didn't even notice it was there. Happily dropped in for shopping and a meal. Some beers might have been consumed. That same site also had high voltage power lines near our location. The only difference was that our site was above the power lines at the top of a hill, so we never even noticed them. Finally, some of this is all about picking a campsite that's suitable for radio, rather than a radio site that will handle camping. You get better at it the more you do it. If you check back after the adventure, you'll learn some stuff as well, so don't be shy to discuss your experience with your friends. Whatever you do, practice makes perfect. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. International Amateur Radio Union Electromagnetic Compatibility Specialist Tori Warren, LA9QL, and Martin Sack, G8KDF, have submitted a paper to the International Special Committee on Radio Interference, CISPR, concerning the increasing impact on multiple digital devices on noise levels in the radio spectrum. The paper was considered at the CISPR Steering Committee in late May, and it was adopted for circulation to the CISPR National Committee for Comment as a committee draft, with a view toward its becoming a CISPR report. IARU hopes that the result of this will be amendments to the way in which standards are developed to recognize the need to properly consider the cumulative impact of multiple devices, said IARU Region 1 President Don Beatty, G3BJ, in an IARU news brief. The first U.S. Air Force Mars Special Operations Group Military Support Supply Network Squadron broadcasts a message on alternate weeks on Fridays in the U.S. time zone from Chief Air Force Mars. The broadcast addresses senior Air Force Mars members, but all amateur radio stations and shortwave listeners are invited to monitor the transmissions. The next transmission will be on June 12th, starting at 2300 UTC on 11.121 MHz and 2320 on 7.324 MHz, followed by the transmissions on June 13th at 0100 UTC on 7.324 MHz and 11.121 MHz, and again at 0120 UTC on 7.324 MHz. Send reception reports via email. These broadcasts occur on alternating Friday evenings, local time in the continental U.S. The deadline is Monday, June 15th, to submit nominations for the 2020 Philip J. McGann Memorial Silver Antenna Award, presented annually to a radio amateur who has demonstrated success in public relations on behalf of amateur radio and who best exemplifies the volunteer spirit of Philip McGann, WA2MBQ. ARRL public information officers and other volunteers are working hard every day to create greater awareness of all that amateur radio has to offer, the committee said in announcing the opening of nominations for the award. They are publicizing special events, writing press releases, or doing interviews on radio and television or in newspapers to highlight the service that amateur radio provides. A journalist, McGann was the first chairman of the ARRL's Public Relations Committee, which helped reinvigorate ARRL's commitment to public relations. Licensed in 1966, McGann was a reporter and photographer for the Evening Observer in western New York. 
Later, he was employed by Wang Laboratories in Massachusetts as a technical documentation manager. McGann also served as ARRLPIO for the New Hampshire section. He became a silent key in 1991. To honor him, members of the New Hampshire Amateur Radio Association joined with the ARRL Board of Directors to establish an award that would pay lasting tribute to the important contributions he made on behalf of amateur radio. Activities for which the McGann Award is presented include those specifically directed at bringing amateur radio to the media's and the public's attention in a positive light. This may include such traditional methods as news releases or interviews, or less traditional methods such as hosting a radio show or being an active public speaker. The ARRL Board of Directors will choose the award winner at its July 2020 meeting based on the recommendations from the ARRL Public Relations Committee. The committee has responsibility for reviewing the nominations and supporting material. Eligible nominees must be full ARRL members in good standing at the time of nomination. The award is given only to an individual, and nominees may not be current ARRL officers, directors, vice directors, paid staffers, or members of the ARRL Public Relations Committee. Nominees must not be compensated for any public relations work involving amateur radio, including payment for articles. A nominee's efforts must fit the definition of public relations and recognize the promotion of amateur radio to the non-amateur radio community. Nominations must be received at ARRL headquarters by the close of business on Friday, June 15, 2020. Nominations must be on an official entry form. Anyone may make a nomination. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. The news media in India reports that amateur radio volunteers came to the aid of district officials during Cyclone Nisagra. The storm made landfall on India's west coast on June 3rd, leaving at least one person dead but sparing the densely populated city of Mumbai. According to the Hindustan Times, as all modes of communication collapsed in less than half an hour after the cyclone made landfall, a group of nine ham radio operators became the eyes and ears for the district administration. The paper said hams were on duty until the evening of June 5th, when mobile networks returned in some areas. Hams were able to relay information regarding deaths, injuries, evacuations, and damage. The storm was reported to be the worst in decades. The International Amateur Radio Union Region 1 Youth Working Group inaugurated Youngsters on the Air Online in late May. With more details on the Youth Working Group Online, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from Newington. The program is an opportunity for young amateurs from Region 1, which is Europe, Africa, and the Mideast, to gather online each month. For each session, a Yoda team member will present various topics. The initial session focused on youth contesting programs in Region 1 
in which young radio sport enthusiasts operate from well-equipped contest stations for various events. The sessions, which are open to all and conducted in English, also offer the opportunity for participants to get answers to questions addressed to the online community. Each session wraps up with a prize raffle. Region 1 Youth Working Group Chair Lisa Leander's PA2LS moderated the May 28th gathering. She said the Yota Online approach evolved because a lot of activities fell victim to the pandemic. Beyond that, she said, Yoda Online provides an interactive venue for those who might be unable to attend even in-person activities. The inaugural Yoda Online session ran about one hour. In addition to social media platforms Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitch, Leanders said the session was streamed on amateur television via the SHAL QO100 geostationary satellite from a location in Belgium with good reports. A huge thanks to everyone watching the first Yoda online session, Leanders said. The successful session gathered more than 600 unique viewers from all continents except Oceania and Antarctica as far as we could track. Considering this, we can say that the event was indeed taking place worldwide. Yoda online was created by a team of young hams from six European countries. The first event involved dozens of hours of planning with several team sessions held in advance to make the free Yoda broadcast available around the globe. Leanders asked all who watched the event or viewed it after the fact for any feedback. The form also gives viewers a chance to suggest topics for future Yoda online gatherings. The second Yoda online session is set for Thursday, June 25th at 1800 UTC. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater K2RHI on 146.940 MHz, serving the Tri-Cities of New York State's capital region from Mount Refinesque in Brunswick, New York. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.